Welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival and to the Bailey Gifford event. We're lucky enough to have the brilliant Owen Colfer with us today, and he's going to be talking to us about his latest and the sixth book in the hugely successful Artemis Fowl series, um, which has only been out, I think, since Thursday. So I don't know if anyone's read it here. Um, I have, and it's absolutely brilliant. So if you're a fan, you won't be disappointed. Um, you've got all the usual suspects and a new character in the form of a silky safarka. I think that's how you pronounce it, but Owen will let us know, Lima. Um, there will be time for questions towards the end of the session. So if you could leave anything that you want to ask till then, that would be great. And if we could just welcome Owen with a round of applause, that'd be fantastic. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Um, Gordon Brown shall be along in a moment, but until then, I shall try to entertain you. Um, I'm delighted to be back again. I, I'm delighted there's loads of people here. Um, how many people have read an Artemis file book before? That's very good. The rest of you could have had the good manners to pretend. <laughs> I've come a long way. Uh, I'm just back from a tour of America, which is very, very different because when you walk onto the stage, everyone just goes, and they haven't a clue who you are. So <laughs> it's just. But in Ireland, it's very different. They're kind of, all the kids are there, yeah. Be funny now, go. <laughs> 35 seconds. Um, it's a different thing. Ireland really brings you back down to earth. If you come back from the States, you think you're famous. And I got back to Ireland. And about, I was getting the bus from the plane to the terminal. And that's how long it took me to be humiliated in Ireland. <laughs> I, got onto the, I got onto the bus. And I'm standing there, and this little girl. And she's looking at me, and I think, oh, she knows who I am. She knows I'm a writer, and I'm hanging on to the thing. So she gets up, and she comes forward hesitantly, and she says, would you like to sit down? <laughs> so I said, shut up. I am not dead yet. <laughs> anyway, I'm not bitter. Um, the new book, Artemis Fowl, and the time paradox, my publisher said I have to talk about that, so there it is. Blah, 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 blah. I might read a bit from that later. It's all about, um, the last couple of books I've done are all about flight and people flying in time tunnels. My last book was called Airman. Uh, and I got interested in flight a long time ago, uh, about 35 years ago. Um, a friend of mine called me uh, and he said, you're not gonna believe what's happened. And I said, what has happened? He said, my parents have gone away for the weekend. My brother is supposed to be looking after me, but he has gone off with his girlfriend, so we have a house to ourselves. And this is like a dream come true uh, for nine, ten-year-old boys. So I said, so what are we going to do? He said, I have devised a game that is so dangerous, it is quite possible none of us will survive. <laughs> I'm like, brilliant! Because there's only uh, three favorite things for a teenage or for a young boy. One, how does my hair look? That is all my son cares about, how his hair looks. Uh, two, how many times today can I embarrass my parents? My son went to the doctor, this is true. The doctor said to him, now Finn, make sure you eat all of your vegetables. My son turned to my wife and said, mommy, what's a vegetable? <laughs> And three, how many times can they be almost killed in one day? <laughs> so I went up to my friend's house all these years ago, and I said to him, um, okay, what's this amazingly almost fatal game? He said, it's brilliant. Um, we have a long garden. Uh, I have built a ramp from little bits of wood. Uh, we have to cycle off the ramp on this specially modified bicycle, which as far as I could see was just a bicycle with two bits of cardboard wings on the side. And uh, whoever flies the farthest uh, wins. I said, wow. I said, there seems to be a little boy kneeling in front of the ramp. Uh, that would be incredibly dangerous, would it not? He said, ah, he's five. Who cares? <laughs> I don't care whether he lives or dies. He's a little brother. So he is the ball boy. So he, when you land, he puts the ball down uh, where you land. And I said, fine. So everybody got to go, and it was my turn to go. So I'm on the bike. I'm talking to the bike as 
you know, young boys like to talk to their possessions. Uh, so I'm saying, come on, Mike, you're a stupid bike. We must win. We must go further than the rest of these people. Let's go. The bike did not reply. Uh, and I cycled down, pumping my legs. And I flew off the ramp a pathetic four feet. And uh, even the ball boy didn't even bother getting up from his position uh, to mark the spot. He just laughed at me. And when you're being laughed at by a five-year-old, that's as low as you can go on the food chain of children. So uh, my friends uh, were laughing at me. Everybody was laughing. Now, what I should have done at this point was throw myself off the bike. Uh, that's what you do. You pull the brakes. But as everybody knows, there is not a boy here today whose brakes work on his bike. They don't work because they don't need them. Because what do boys do when their brakes aren't working? They simply get off the bike and allow the bicycle to continue along uh, down the road. I called to my son recently. He was cycling past. I said, Finn, your dinner's ready. Uh, and he just simply jumped off the bike and walked over. I said, Finn, your bike is going uh, down the road. He said, don't worry. It shall be stopped by your car. <laughs> and that's when I knew where all the black stripes were coming from on my car, which I thought were aliens, but were now my son, uh, Finn. So anyway, I forgot to jump off the bike, pulled the brakes, nothing happened. So I went careering down this long garden, uh, through the hedge, down the hill, and I would have gone into the stream except luckily my progress was stopped by crashing into an old person. Uh, <laughs> so that was lucky. Um, because, you know, they're old, they're almost dead. You don't care when you're a kid, you're just, eh, you didn't have long to go anyway. Well, you know, I'm just cutting short the inevitable. I say old, this person was probably 15, but <laughs> when you're 12, that's like, you know, last century. So I'm getting out. I said, thanks very much. Uh, listen, you might want to stay there because we're doing this all day. <laughs> so it would be great. Thank you. So I pulled my bike out of her teeth and went back up to my friend. And he went, oh my God, oh my God, is my bike okay? <laughs> and I assured him that it was. And then they all stood around in a circle uh, to laugh at me and point. And uh, I was said, you are out of the competition. That was like four feet. That's pathetic. You're done. And I said, please. Give me one more chance. And they said, okay, you can have one more chance. Go home and train your legs and come back tomorrow a stronger person. And so I went home and, um, and trained, as I had seen in the Rocky movies, um, in slow motion and uh, up the stairs three or four times. And that I thought was enough and came back the next day um, supercharged and ready to go. Uh, and I had my plan all worked out that this day, um, I would cycle on my new improved legs, fly possibly a couple of miles, um, land, pull the brakes, which wouldn't really work, throw myself off to the side, um, making sure not to mess my hair on the way down, and come up like this, hey, and be the winner. And that was my plan. And so I got on the bike, and I began to pedal as fast as I could, um, come up to the ramp, went off, gave myself an extra kick off, on the head of the ball boy, went flying, and it was doing really well. And it was, I thought, this is the fantastic. I'm going to be the winner. Went about 12 feet, came down victorious. My plan, remember, was to pull the brakes, uh, which wouldn't really work, but would slow me down enough so I could throw myself off. So I pulled the brakes, which had been fixed, and were now the best brakes in the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, pulled the brakes and went flying through the air. And up there I was, up in the sky, looking down at my friends below. Now, to most people, this would be a problem. You're thinking, if it, like a 10-year-old girl would think, okay, I'm flying now, but shortly I shall be plummeting and I shall be badly hurt. But a 10-year-old boy does not think that far into the future. They're just thinking, I'm flying. <laughs> this is going to last forever. I must have been bathed by radiated light, and now I have superpowers. This is fantastic. And to them, that seems much more logical than you're going to fall down now in a second. I knew how to fly, as do we all, having seen Superman. You put one arm behind your back, and you put the other arm out in front, and then you smile cynically down at the poor mortals on the ground. Ha, 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 look at me, you fools. You and your stupid bicycle competition where I am an actual superhero. Unfortunately, I was not a superhero, uh, and soon my... Um, 
flight path began to dip, uh, but I did not have time to take my arm in, and so I crashed into the ground like this with my arm uh, extended, and there was a series of snaps. Horrible snaps. Well, this reminds me now briefly of a story about another guy with a broken arm. I did an event recently, and there was a kid seated at the front with his mother. Uh, this was in Seattle. And on the wall beside, he had his arm in a cast, broke his arm. On the wall beside him, there was a, an electrical socket and a switch. And this is what this kid was doing. I am not kidding. He was licking his little finger, and he was trying to get it into the switch. And with the, he was flicking it on and off. And he was really determined. And this kid like, was now 14. This was not a little tiny kid. He had no excuse. And I thought, oh my god, if he gets his finger in there, he could blow out my microphone. And so I said, Madam, your son is trying to kill himself. Would you please, you please stop him? And so afterwards, they came up. And when in a situation like that, I'm a teacher, you look for the positive. Uh, the teacher always looks for something. When you go in to see the teacher for the report thing, they look for the best thing about your child. So when you go in, as I do, and the teacher says to you, well, your son is great at sharing, you're thinking, oh my god, that's the best thing they have to say, <laughs> that he's good at sharing. We are in trouble. Uh, but anyway, so this kid comes up and I said, wow, uh, and I didn't want to mention the socket incident, so I said, wow, uh, how did your son break his arm? And she said, yes, Michael, tell Mr. Colfer how you broke your arm, Mr. Genius. <laughs> and I reckon this is probably not a clever story. Uh, and, and this is what happened, and this is true. The mother, well, this is what the mother told me. Michael and his friend went to the top of the tree in the garden, and they were sitting there. And Mike, Michael's friend turned to Michael and said, Michael, I bet you, you can't dive out of this tree like this uh, without breaking your arm. Five dollars. And the kid says, yeah, no problem, five dollars. And he dives out uh, and he breaks his arm. Uh, and while the mother is telling this, the kids are going, <laughs> like, this is the smartest thing in the world. And uh, I said, wow, uh, that really must have made you upset when he did that. And this is what she said to me. She said, it did make me upset the first time. <laughs> so Brainiac, when he gets the cast off his arm, his friend says to him, give me the $5. He said, no way, I can do it, man. <laughs> he goes back up the tree and dives out again and breaks his arm again. And for all I know, he is doing it still. <laughs> so anyway, I'm flying through the air. Oh, oh, oh. Crash, snap, 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 snap. I'm over on my back line there. Oh. Then the worst is not over because when I let go the brake of the bike, it comes after me like it's on a revenge, <laughs> revenge mission and rolls over it again. And so now my arm is broken in four places. It was actually this arm, but it was broken in four places, which is not really good. And, uh, and I'm lying there with my tight, um, sweater on or my jumper, a very tight jumper. I was telling this story in America uh, and I said the word jumper uh, and I got uh, kind of a nervous titter and I found out later that in, in America a jumper uh, is not like a football jersey like in Ireland but it's a little dress worn by a kindergarten girl. Uh, uh, and it took me a while to realize that and I was told another story about, you know in Ireland we have hurling, the sports hurling. Uh, in America, hurl, if you're hurling, uh, it means you're, well, it's another kind of sport, isn't it? It's, you're, you're violently ill, you're hurling. So thanks to Wayne's World, and this little girl put up her hand. She said, excuse me, Mr. Colfer. I said, yes. She said, we know you like to write during the week. What do you do for fun on the weekend? And I said, well, little girl, I like to hurl. <laughs> and she was a bit freaked. She held her mother's hand tightly. She said, <gasps> you like to hurl for the entire weekend? I said, no, that would be ridiculous. I hurl for two hours on Saturday and perhaps three hours on Sunday. And she persevered. She said, what do your family think about all this hurling? I said, we're a close family. We like to hurl together. Boys against the girls. Aren't you cold? Aren't you cold when you're out in this field doing all this hurling? I said, no because I'm wearing my special hurling jumper. <laughs> so anyway, I'm lying there, 
on my back uh, with my arm broken in four places, uh, which I don't really know yet. And my friend comes running over. I said, oh, I think I broke my arm. And my friend, whose name was Declan, said, no, no, no. You did not break your arm. I said, no, I actually, I think I did. He said, no, you don't understand me. This is an illegal ramp. I was not supposed to build this. In fact, I was ordered not to build it. So if you broke your arm here, I'm in major trouble. Therefore, you didn't break your arm. I said, well, can we at least have a look? And so I struggled up to my knee and lifted up my arm like this. And I had the tight uh, jersey and he pulled it up to my elbow and the middle section of my arm just dropped down. <laughs> and he went, ah, that is hilarious. Look, it goes all the way around. <laughs> Wait, I just got to get my action man. Uh, so he came put action man sitting on it like a little swing. I said, okay, this is funny, but it's not helping my arm. I said, okay. I have, I have two plans to fix this. And the first plan uh, is holy water. And so <laughs> he went inside and we had a, in his house he had a Lourdes, uh, you know, Lady of Lourdes. It's a very tasteful and non-commercial bottle in the shape of the Virgin Mary with a blue crown, which you twist off and then you've got Lourdes water, uh, which will cure any spiritual ailment, but no physical ones, unfortunately. So. So he poured it out, and as he was pouring, I said, you have to say a prayer. He said, you don't know any prayers. You never listen in Mass. And I said, I didn't know any prayers either because I didn't listen. And I will tell you a shameful secret. I spent the 1970s in Mass staring at the stained glass window, uh, praying for a grenade to come in. <laughs> no, not so everybody would die. No, no, but, but so I would run up, you know, in slow motion. Hey, don't worry about it, Father, I got this. I would get the grenade and throw it back out and I would be a hero, you know? So I used to go to the church and I'd be like, with my foot there so I'd be ready to take off. My mother, what the hell are you, are you doing? I said, grenade, mother! Someone has to be ready! <laughs> so I said, I know a prayer about some holy grenade. That's the only prayer I know. He said, listen, I know prayers. I've listened at Christmas and stuff. I'll say a prayer. So I poured on the holy water saying, oh my God, Thank you for this food. We are about Happy Easter, uh, 12 Apostles, Mel Gibson, Happy uh, Amen. Okay, so amazingly, this prayer did not work. Um, and my arm was still broken. Uh, so he said, that's okay, I have another plan. And what's your second plan? His second plan, he ran inside and he came back with two rolls of toilet paper. I said, I know I'm in pain, but I'm not in that much pain. He said, no. He said, this is a great plan. And he told me, hold out your skinny little arm. And I held out my skinny little arm. And he put the toilet roll, two toilet rolls over my arm, onto my forearm. And I said, this is great. I feel like a dispenser. Should I go and stand in a restroom somewhere with that? He said, no, idiot. This is a splint. I've seen it on TV. I just pull out all the toilet paper. I wrap your arm to your body. The cardboard holds it in place. And the paper uh, keeps it still. I said, wow. This is actually quite clever. I said, why are you doing my head? <laughs> he said, well, it's funny, you know. It has to be something in it for me. I mean, after all, I am supplying the toilet paper. So he wrapped me completely up in the toilet paper. And I, this is, and I stood there. He poured some holy water on to make it soggy. And he said, here's the plan. You go home. You hide underneath your bed for like six weeks. And then you come out. You take off the toilet paper. You should be fine. If you're not fine, hurl yourself to the bottom of the stairs and pretend that's where you broke your arm, and then at least I won't get in trouble. And I said, okay, that sounds like a good plan. And I'm walking out, but unfortunately, when you break your arm sometimes, you get like 15 minutes grace before the pain kicks in, and my 15 minutes were up. Um, I hadn't felt anything really, but then he opened the door, banged me in the arm, and I passed out squealing uh, like a four-year-old soprano, and woke up in hospital with a big cast on my arm. And the first thing I saw was Declan, my friend, talking to my mother. And here's what Declan was saying. I don't know what happened, Mrs. Calfer. I just came home and your son had built a ramp in my garden. <laughs> it's a true thing, but there's nothing uh, boys like better than to see other boys get in trouble, especially if it's their younger brother. 
Um, boys do a great line on being really indignant if their younger brother does something wrong. I can't believe you ate that biscuit before dinner. You have brought shame on the family. Beat him. Beat him, mother. Shall I fetch you a shovel? It's no trouble. I could just get... So I got my revenge on Declan, but it took me 30 years um, for getting me in trouble like that. And 30 years later, I was a married Irish man, and my wife came in with my Christmas present one Christmas day. And how would you feel, husbands, if you got this present from your wife? My present from my wife was a voucher for a parachute jump. <laughs> what is the message there? I said, darling, why, what did you, she said, shut up, sign those papers. I said, okay. So I went to do a parachute jump and I rang my friend Declan, the same guy, who's still my best friend. I said, Decky, I'm going to do a parachute jump. Do you want to come with me? He said, yes. And so we drove up to the middle of Ireland to the Irish Skydiving Centre. We did our training, which involved a day of, you know, jumping from a low wall onto a little mat. And, and we said, is it just like this? It's exactly like that. <laughs> You just, just, no problem. And so we got up in the plane, and I thought it'd be something like at a Goldfinger, a lovely plane with stewardesses and leather seats and stuff. It was like a lawnmower with wings. It was the noisiest thing I've ever been in. So we sat there with our helmets on and our microphones, and I couldn't hear a thing except the plane. And uh, the instructor was sitting opposite me in deck. He was shouting at us. All right, I thought this could be pretty important. Um, <laughs> And I was looking at Declan, and Declan was like, yeah, uh-huh, yeah. And I was, you total crawler. You can't hear a word he's saying. How, how can you? And then I started to have fun with this. I said, and I have never liked you. You stink. I hate you. And then I was looking at the instructor. Yeah, you stink too. I hate you. You're stupid. Is that a real nose? What's that? You know, I bet your mother stinks. Your mother probably looks like a baboon. At which point he leaned forward and he flicked a switch on my helmet and I could hear everything. He said, yeah, you forgot to turn your earphones on. We can hear everything you say. He said, do you think it's a good idea to tell a man who's about to throw you out of a plane that his mother looks like a baboon? I said, no, Stinky, I don't. He said, that's Stonke, I'm French. I said, okay. And I said, anyway, what's the big deal? There's the door. We jump out the door. End of story. He said, oh, no. He said, there's much more to this, but we don't tell people because they chicken out. And then I started to pay attention. He said, look out the porthole. And I did. He said, do you see the wing? I said, no, no, no wing. It's a plane. He said, well, look out to the end of the wing. What's on it? And I said, there are two handprints painted in red. What are they for? He said, you have to walk along, along the strut of the plane until you get to the handprints. At which point, you put your hands on the handprints, you let your legs fly behind you, so you're flying along uh, beside the plane. I said, are you insane? <laughs> he said, you're gonna jump out of a plane, what do you care? I said, okay. At this point, he said, look into at me, and I will do uh, this. This means, are you ready? Uh, we'll also be communicating uh, by the, you know, with the wireless, and you nod. And then I will do that, and that means go, at which point you let go both your hands at the same time. Not one first, or you will spin off. At the same time, you go into your exposition, and then off you go. And that'll be fine. I said, okay. I'm getting a little worried now. I'm out on the wing. Declan is laughing his head off. Uh, I'm going along the wing. I'm starting to pray to every god. I, I'm praying to Jesus. But uh, Allah, I think I prayed to Aslan. I was... <laughs> I'm going out along the wing. The wind is kind of, it's so hard my lip is up over my face. I can't see anything. I get there eventually. My hands are on the things. And I look in. And the guy does this. And I very stupidly do that. At which point I frisbee off into the sky. And I'm wondering, what is that high-pitched noise in my ear? And it's me screaming. <laughs> and a guy saying, pull the cord, pull the cord. I'm not wearing cords. <laughs> he said, no, you fool. 
I said, yes, Aslan. He said, it's not Aslan. <laughs> so I pulled the cords and I came out. Uh, and if you go off spinning like that, sometimes your cords get tangled up. So I looked up, my chute was not opening because my cords were tangled. And he said, kick out of it, kick out of it. And you have to kick out of it. So what you do when you're, it's like being on a swing in the playground. You kind of just have to kick around. And of course, someone got a video of me doing the birdie dance at, <laughs> at 8,000 feet. And this, um, but I kicked out of it and I came down, everything was fine. Uh, landed on the, the Red Cross, everything was great. My friend Declan came after me and he was having a fantastic time. He was singing YMCA all the way down and putting his words in. My MCA, this is brilliant. Why MCA, you are so stupid. <laughs> so he lands, and this is, this is what happened. He landed, and he just took one step forward, and there was this crack, and his ankle just snapped. And it was really weird, because he fell down, and his leg stayed standing up. And I was like, why MCO, your ankle's broken, why? He said, do you think my ankle's really broken? I said, well, seeing as I'm talking to you and your foot's over there, I think it probably is. He said, oh no, what are we going to do? And I said, I'll get some toilet paper. 30 years, I waited to say that. And so that is kind of how I be became interested in flight. And then when I didn't die in the parachute jump, my wife got me a flying lesson. Um, so I did that and uh, I became interested to start a research flight. And people often ask me if you could have one gadget that the fairies have, which gadget would that be? And I would always say the wings because I've always, like most kids, I want to fly. Now I want to read a bit of this lovely shiny book. Look boys, shiny, ooh, ooh. Now in this story, Artemis Fowl has to go back into the past to find the cure to save his mother. The cure lies in the brain fluid of a silky sifaka lemur that is now extinct. And he knows it's extinct because he sold it to the guys that killed it five years ago. So he knows exactly where it's going to be. So he gets his uh, demon warlock friend number one, which is, I always say is better than being called number two. Number one is going to blast him back using a warlock magic he's going to blast him and holly short who's the police captain uh, and there's kind of artemis and holly have had this love hate thing uh, for the last five books and uh, so it gets a bit awkward now when they're being blasted into the time tunnel once the situation was explained to number one he immediately agreed to help you're in luck artemis said the little demon wiggling his eight fingers i did a module on time travel last week on the warlock diploma course i'm taking that's a small class, I bet, commented Artemis dryly. Just me and Quan, of course my teacher, apparently I am the most powerful warlock he has ever seen. Good, said Artemis. Then transporting us all into the past shouldn't pose any problems for you. Number one spread his arms wide. I am a beacon, he declared, a shining supernova of power. Any magic I release into the ether will be attracted back to me. I send you into the past and you will snap back to me like puppies on a leash. Number one frowned, not happy with this simile. One of those retractable leashes. Yes, yes, we get it, said Artemis. How long will it take to weave the spell? Number one chewed his lip for a moment. About as long as it takes you two to remove your clothing. Hurt, said Artemis, half choking with surprise. Darvit, swore Holly. I think we all know what Darvit means, said number one, but hark is not English unless you meant hark, which means listen to something from the past, which I suppose could be relevant, or perhaps you were speaking in Dutch, then Herk would translate as squat. Number one paused for a wink, which means squat to me. Artemis leaned close to the demon's cornet-shaped ear. Why do we need to take our clothes off? That is a very good question, said Holly into the other ear. It's quite simple. If you take your clothes or guns in there, they could become a part of you. Lesson number one of time transfers, keep it simple. It's going to take all of your concentration just to reassemble your bodies. Number one noticed both Artemis's and Holly's awkward expression and took pity on them. I suppose you could keep one thing if you must, a small garment, but make sure it's your color because you could be wearing it for a really long time. 
Holly covered her embarrassment by tearing off her shimmer suit. I'm keeping the one piece, she said, belligerently daring number one to argue. The one piece looked similar to a swimsuit but was padded on the shoulders and back to support a wing rig. Artemis took off his shirt and trousers, carefully hanging them in the wardrobe. He placed his loafers on a shoe rack alongside several similar black pairs and one brown for casual days. Nice underwear, snickered Foley from the screen. Artemis was wearing a pair of red Armani boxer shorts, which were pretty much the same colour as his face. Can we get on with it? Where do you need us to stand? It's hard enough shooting you off down a wormhole faster than the speed of light without worrying where we have to stand to. We are in the right location. This is where we need to be. Next thing you need to know is when you want to arrive. The temporal coordinates are important as the geographical ones. I know when. Very well, said number one, rubbing his hands together. Time to send you on your way. Holly asked a very pertinent question. Number one, have you done this before? Of course, said the demon, several times on a simulator, and two of the holograms survived. <laughs> Artemis's determination barely flickered. Two survived. The last two? No, admitted number one. The last two were trapped in a time wormhole and consumed by quantum zombies. Holly felt her pointy ears tingle, always a bad sign. Quantum zombies? You're not serious. That's what I said to Quan. He wrote the program. This is irrelevant, said Artemis. We have no option but to go. Very well, said number one, flexing his fingers. He bent his knees, resting his entire body weight on the tip of his tail. Paraposture, he explained. I do some of my best work in this position. So does Mulch Diggums, muttered Foley. If you know Mulch Diggums, you know what that joke means. A red haze blossomed around the demon warlock, tiny lightning bolts crackling across his horns. Artemis and Holly stood together in their underwear, gingerly locking fingers. They had crossed space and time together, weathered rebellions entangled with demented despots, coughed blood, lost digits, inhaled dwarf fumes and swapped eyeballs, and yet they found holding hands awkward. Number one knew he shouldn't, but he couldn't resist a parting crack. I now pronounce you... Neither handholder was amused, but before they had time to do more than scowl, twin bolts of red energy crackled from number one's eyes, blasting his friends into the time stream. Man and elf, he said, finishing his joke and then chuckling delightedly. On screen, Foley snorted. I'm guessing you're laughing to cover your anxiety. Exactly right, said number one. Where Artemis and Holly had been standing, there were flickering copies of them both, mouths open to object to number one's comments. That really freaks me out, the ghost images. It's like they're dead. Foley shuddered. Don't say that. If they're dead, we all could be. How soon will they be back? in about 10 seconds. And if they're not back in 10 seconds, then never. Foley started counting. So that's uh, a, little, a little bit from that. Um, they get sent off into the past and where they meet the extinctionists. And the extinctionists are based on a true group of people who don't like the idea uh, that animals have equal rights or don't like anyone who does like that idea. And they take great delight in eating animals that are almost extinct. Um, luckily, that group is no more, but uh, my group of extinctionists are alive and well and have moved to Morocco in North Africa where Artemis and Holly have to follow them and get this lemur back. It's a comedy. Uh, it doesn't sound like it, you know, people being extinct and stuff, but it, uh, it's funny in places. <laughs> now, I'm going to take about 20 minutes of questions. I will try and get in as many as you can. Um, when someone comes to you with the mic, can you please tell us your name in case I want to sue you later? <laughs> Which I probably won't, but you know, you never know. So who's first there? We have Mike. Just. Uh, yeah, is there ever going to be a sequel to Half Moon Investigations? Um, I'm working on Half Moon Investigations. Well, I'm planning the sequel. I, ho I hope there will be. We just sold that actually to uh, the BBC to make a TV series. I believe someone told me they were casting here a couple of weeks ago, which I didn't know anything about. So apparently Half Moon is now in Scotland, uh, which is something I might have to talk to them about. But uh, <laughs> Half Moon is kind of the closest character to myself, Fletcher Moon, because when I was a kid, I wanted to be a detective and I made a little detective badge and I would go around trying to solve crime. But there was no crime really where I, in our house where I was allowed. And so eventually I had to steal stuff from my mother and then go offer to find it. Um, that was the only way I could get a case. I would go to my mother and say, I believe your rolling pin is missing. That's my badge. And she said, who told you my rolling pin was missing? I said, excuse me? 
I must leave now. So um, <laughs> that didn't last very long. So Fletcher Moon is actually, he gets to be a detective, which is something I wanted to be. So hopefully there will be a sequel in a couple of years. Anyone else there? If some, whoever has the mic, just go and give to a question. That'll be great. And my name's Sophia. Hi, Sophia. How old were you when you discovered you wanted to be an author? Um, I was writing stories at a very young age. I didn't necessarily know I wanted to be an author, but even before I went to school, I was writing stories, which can be a bit... And I thought everybody wrote stories. And so when I went to school, I thought, well, we'll all be just writing stories. It'll be great. And the teacher did that thing of asking everybody what they like to do. You know, on your first day in school, you're a tiny little kid. And so one first guy said, yeah, well, I like to burn insects with my magnifying glass. <laughs> and all the other boys were, yes, respect. And the second guy, yeah, I like, just like to beat anyone who's smaller than me. Oh, very good. And I said, I like to write stories about fairies and leprechauns. And I felt the heat from the magnifying glass on the side of my head <laughs> almost immediately. So I learned to keep that quiet uh, for a while. Um, but I think I was about 12 before I realized you could actually write a book and you could be people made their living from that. It was a long time before I had this image in my head of writers. All writers were guys in England and they had like a country estate and shotguns and they would stroll around and then they would shoot things and then in the afternoon they would sit down and they would write a book about adventures in deep dark Africa and that's what I thought a writer until I met a guy who was a writer and he was like a normal guy and, and that's what made me decide I wanted to be a writer. I think I made that decision when I was about 15 but up to then I was writing stories all the time and if you're a young, are you a young writer? Is that what you want to do? Well they're looking for young writers all the time. So my advice to you or to any young writer is start small. Don't try to write 150 pages on your first story. Build up to that. And every story you have, try and put in one thing that you never heard of before. So one thing that's totally original just for your story. Okay? And if you make any money, obviously you have to give me 25% now <laughs> from that advice. Anyone over here? Oh, yeah. Um, who inspired the character Conor Brokart in Airman? Uh, Conor Brokart was, in a way, is the opposite of Artemis because Artemis is kind of the shady intellectual character. But Conor Brokart is the traditional Victorian hero in that basically he's good. He's a good person. And the idea of these stories, in many of the books you read, um, and even books before that, was you take a really good guy. Uh, like Robin of Loxley, or like, <clears throat> like Conor Brokart, and he's got a fantastic life, and everything is wonderful. He's got a princess who fancies him, he's living in a castle, he's learning how to do sword fighting, and everyone's thinking, this is fabulous, and then you just take it all away. You do the most horrible things to him you can, and then the third part of the book is about how uh, he will come back from that. And I, thought, and I was trying to think, what is the worst thing you can do uh, to a boy. What's the worst thing? Is it to put him in prison? It is to have him watch his girlfriend's father being murdered? Is it to have him blamed for that murder? And I thought, no, the worst thing you can do to any boy or any child really is to have their parents denounce them and say, I hate you. I don't ever want to see you again. As far as I'm concerned, you are dead. And I thought, that is really the worst thing you could do. So obviously that's what I did to poor Connor. Um, I don't know, it was a kind of therapy for me, um, getting back at my own brothers or something, I don't know what it was, but uh, he's a traditional, he's not really based on anyone except the ideal of the hero of the 19th century. Anyone, anyone else there? We got a microphone. Ooh. Hi, um, my name's Ethan. Um, Hi, Ethan. Is there ever going to be um, more graphic novels of Artemis Fowl? Because it was the graphic novel that got me inspired in reading Artemis Fowl. Well, that's good. Um, a lot of people say that, that they were kind of sucked in by the graphic novel, which is, you know, not the only reason why we did it, obviously. Uh, we did it because I'm a big graphic novel fan. And we're working on a second graphic novel at the moment. And that should be out uh, in the spring, I think. So I'm not sure exactly when, but we're, we're working on the adaptation and it's the same artist. And we're going to do a supernaturalist adaptation too, because the Artemis ones are so successful. Okay, we go over this side then. 
Do you have a favourite author or book yourself? I do have favourite authors. and Well, it's very hard to have like one favourite author. I kind of have a favourite author every week. Uh, the, the best book I've read recently uh, was one of the Penguin classics. It was The Adventures and Exploits of Brigadier Gerard by Arthur Conan Doyle, which is about uh, this French officer in the Napoleonic Wars, which were apparently hilarious. Uh, nobody knows. So, um, and it's all about this little French guy who thinks he's God's gift to women and he's going around during the wars. I uh, also, I really like, for your younger people, I like a book called The Princess Bride. I don't know if any of you have read that. Many of the la ladies have read it, not many of the men, because of the words princess and bride, which they are very macho people, young men, and to get them to say the words princess bride, they don't even like to think it in case any of their friends can read minds. So to buy The Princess Bride, they have to hide it inside a copy of Shoot and Guns and Ammo, and then... But I would advise you to read that because it's an amazing book about swashbuckling. And I'd say it's the funniest book I've ever read for grown-ups or kids. So if you haven't read that, go and buy it now in the bookstore. If you've only enough money for one book, well, obviously, you know. Uh, <laughs> I came a long way, so. And he's dead, so he doesn't mind. Although he was a spiritualist, so maybe he's watching this now. Anyone on this side there? Just pick someone. I don't, I, you know. If you could steal an idea from any other author to put in one of your books, who would you steal one if from? If I could steal an idea from any other... What, what are you trying to say there? Are you, <laughs> are you trying to hint at something? I'm just trying to think, did I... Well, well, there's been some great... I mean, obviously, there's been... I, I think William Shakespeare had a few pretty good ones. I had probably... But more in my own genre, I think... Um, I really like... I, li I really like all the... I think Charlie Higson is doing great books now, the Young Bond books. I don't know if you've read any of those. I think they're really excellent. I think Philip Pullman is like a genius. So I would probably try and, st I have, no, I haven't. Uh, <laughs> as I always say, if I'm ever having a bad day and I have no ideas, I just go down to Philip Pullman's house and go through his trash and <laughs> I find out whatever Philip throws away is good enough for the rest of us. So I don't do that. Um, so there's loads of people that inspire me. I think Sherlock Holmes is possibly the greatest in the crime fiction. I would have loved to have come up with Sherlock Holmes. And in the, uh, the best villain I can think of is Captain Hook. I would have loved to come, it's so simple and such genius. There's a guy, he's a captain and he has a hook and his name is Captain Hook. Oh, <laughs> it's amazing. I mean, Captain Two Legs isn't quite so good or Captain Hand, it's not great. So Captain Hook, I think all of James Bond villains are ripped off from Captain Hook. It's all, that's all they are, Captain Hook. So brilliant. We've got a boy there in a stripy prison jersey. What's your what? name? What's your name? Michael. Michael, how are you? What was your favourite book that you wrote? Um, I have a soft spot always for the first book I wrote and the last book I wrote. Because the last one you're hoping will be your best one. Uh, and also it's the one you're trying to flog. I mean, the one you're trying to... Uh, <laughs> no. But the first book was a book called Benny and Omar. And I was, my little son Finn had just been born. I remember I was holding him in my arms and talking baby talk to him when the phone rang. So I was like, ooh, what's your name? What's your name? And the phone rang and went, what's your name? What's your <laughs> and they said, can we speak to your daddy? And I said, oh, I'll just get him. And I said, hello. <laughs> hello. And they said, we are publishing your book. And I went, yay. Oh. <laughs> but I blamed the nurses and we got a few million out of it. So, you know. No, so that's, I think that it's, a, it's a very um, memorable moment in any writer's life when they have their first book uh, in their hand and it's actually been published after all those years, 10, 12 years, trying to get something published. And finally, it, it's worth all the work, any, again, any young writers out here. The reason most people don't get published is because they stop trying. They write one book and they think, oh, this is not for me. Uh, but you need to do three or four. It's very rare the person who gets published on their first try. Extremely rare. Okay, anyone in the middle section here? Who, who, What's your name? Matthew. Matthew. Who do you think you're most like in all the Artemis Fowl books? I am possibly most like the uh, computer centaur Bowley. Uh, obviously not the horsey bit, but the, the, the computer nerd bit. Because I sit around and I'm like, it's a, it's a sad thing, ladies and gentlemen, to see a 43-year-old man in a room in the corner laughing 
in the computer at him with himself, ha 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 ha, and doing all the voices as well, which is really bad. I'm, I'm acting out what's going on. I'm like, rah, 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 rah. my kids are saying, shut up, father. Uh, it's not so bad if you can see the computer because you know what I'm doing. But if you can't see the computer, it just looks like I'm insane. Uh, one time I was trying to work outside, it was sunny, and I couldn't see the screen, so I got a big shopping box and I put the computer into it. Uh, and now it was shaded and I could see the screen. And I'm rah, 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 rah. So now it looks like I'm laughing into a box. <laughs> My wife and kids, they know what I'm doing, so that's okay. It's fine, and I'm rah, rah, rah. Ha, 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 oh, kind sir, you're too kind, ha, ha. And a friend of my wife's came and she didn't know what was happening. And she's on the patio with my wife and they're having coffee and she, I didn't know it looked weird. And uh, eventually, I knew it looked weird when she put her arm around my wife and hugged her and said, you know something, Jackie, I will always be here for you. <laughs> she thought I was a loony. So um, I had to stop doing that and I have to say, computer, there's a computer in the box. Now, anyone on this side there? I'm, jo I'm Joseph. Joseph. Um, what football team do you support? Football. I support my wife and kids. Wife and kids. <laughs> I don't support football. My son, my, I'm not sporty at all. You probably thought I was from looking at me. I said, there's a sporty guy, but I'm not. And uh, when I was a kid, I think I supported Everton because I liked their, they had a lovely blue jersey. That's a very fetching blue. I, um, I think I'll support them. And my son said to me, very cruelly, because sons can be extremely cruel, one time when we were playing football, he was five at this stage, and he was already running rings around me in football, and I had fallen to the ground again. And he said, I'm going to bring you back and swap you for a sporty dad. <laughs> I know, so uh, I punched him a few times, obviously. <laughs> now, I suppose we should go over to this side then. Can you pick someone on the end? My name's Astrid. Are you ever going to make a movie out of Artemis Fowl? Oh, bring that up, Astrid, why don't you? <laughs> I had repressed that. Um, yeah, we're working on a movie. We're working on several movies. At the moment, uh, in development is uh, Fetcher Moon series, The Airman, which would be, um, a, would be all CGI, like The Incredibles. We're doing, also doing Artemis Fowl script. Uh, but it's been going on for like for eight years now, eight years. But I just heard when they're going to release it, they're going to release it two weeks after I die. <laughs> uh, so I don't know, I was just in Los Angeles last week with the director, so it's all looking good, but it, it's going to be next year before they make it, so you'll all be. As you're such a nice audience, when it does come out, you go down to the cinema, you say, I sent you, and they will let you in for eight pounds. <laughs> that's a good deal. No? Anyone in this section? There's a girl right down here in the front. Um, my name's Katie. What Hi, inspired Katie. you to create the character Julius Root? Julius Root is uh, the police chief, and he shouts a lot at the people, but he loves them. And he was inspired by a friend of mine who's a teacher. And he would just shouts at his kids, even in this day of child-centered modern education he stands in front of the class Katie and he just screams information and his theory is that if he's louder than the kids some of it will vibrate into their heads <laughs> but he's a very funny guy and he shouts horrible things but because he's so funny the kids think he's joking so he's like you you are stupid you are stupider than this lump of clay I'm holding in my hand your family is ugly and you're all thick and the kids are going <laughs> And he means every word of it, so... <laughs> he gets away with stuff that... Uh, he gets away with things that nobody... You send a note into him, you know, do you have any, you know, do you have any paper clips? And a note comes back, yes, I do. <laughs> so he's one of these guys that he's horrendously offensive, but yet everybody loves him, uh, which is a very hard thing to pull off. Uh, and he does it, so I based Julius Root on him. And uh, I think, I'm not sure if he knows it, I think he must know, but he... But he's a, he's a good guy. If you ever go to Ireland and you're outside of school and the walls are shaking, uh, that's his school. Anyone in the center left? Oh, I thought he was going to you there. That was terrible. <laughs> I was already, ah, oh, he's coming back. Uh, uh. Hi, my name's Robbie. Robbie. I was reading Airman 
and I noticed something interesting. Is this a mistake? No. <laughs> no, go on then, that's fine. The alias of Connor shares the same surname as the main character from the wish list. You see, I like to do this. I like to do uh, what's called create a universe. And so you drop stuff. Maybe some of the readers have noticed this. Names from different books, you change them around. and you're, So the, there's a thing called a Maishi Corporation in the Supernaturalist. But then in the wish list, the little ghost is called Maishi. So you think, well, maybe that was his company when he was alive. And uh, you can kind of link them all together. So it's like uh, Marvel Comics do that as well, where they have this universe so people from other books keep on popping up and not many people spot that so so well done but that's all there's stuff like that throughout all the books if you keep an eye out for it you can see 30 or 40 people that pop up in all the different books thank you anyone else there there's where's the i'll let you choose this time i can see you're upset from last time i don't want to you don't want to mess with the staff here you'll never be asked back Hi, um what inspired you to write the supernaturalist what's your name Angus. How old are you? Like 25? That's a 25-year-old voice, surely. No. <laughs> 14. For 14. What inspired me to write The Supernaturalist? Supernaturalist is a ghost story. I read an article in a magazine. It was a good science magazine. And they interviewed people after they died, wait, and were brought back with a defibrillator. You know those things? And they asked them, you know, when you were dead for four minutes, what did you see? And some of them said, well, we saw a big white tunnel of light. Wow. Or another person said, I was standing by a river and on the opposite side were all my relatives that had passed on. And they were saying, come to us. You owe me money. <laughs> but one woman said, I was lying there. She said, I could see myself from above myself looking down. And there was the tunnel of light there. But then these lovely blue angels came, blue shining light. And they lifted me up and they guided me towards the tunnel. And I thought, oh, wow, that's great. I said, but then the writer in me began to twist this around. I said, what if they were not angels? What if they were kind of stealing away your soul? And that's where the supernaturalist uh, began, right when I was reading that. So again, if you're a young writer, you've got to be open because you never know when the idea is going to come along or that someone is going to say something to you, a sentence, uh, and it's going to inspire you. I mean, the, the whole Artemis Fowl series came from one word, and the word was leprechaun. And I, was, I wanted to do a leprechaun book, and I was looking at the word leprechaun, and then I was talking to someone, and I think they were American, and they pronounced it leprechaun. I thought, well, recon is a police term. So it would be leprechaun. That would be L-E-P, which sounds like NYPD or something. So will I do lower earth? No, I think middle earth's been done. I want to do earth. Uh, lower elements police. LEP reconnaissance, that's leprechaun. I said, my God, this is fantastic. And so far I've got six books out of that. So <laughs> you never know when that one little tiny, tiny thing is gonna blossom and become an entire series of books. And it was the same with the supernaturalist. I will go over to this side, I think. You see anyone there? The staff here are the fittest people in the world because they have to run up and down these steps all day. And do you have a favourite... What's your name? Hamish. Hamish, yes. Do you have a favourite out in any of the Artemis Fowl books? Um, I don't... Re I do have a soft spot for the second one, The Arctic Incident, um, because I put all my brothers in it and then killed them. Uh, <laughs> because they were annoying me, you know. Uh, so you got to... I have little brothers, and they're not the nicest little... Well, they weren't. They're lovely now, but at the time they were total pests, and they would just steal everything from you. They were weird because they would go around wearing only their underpants all the time in, in the summer. And they would store food. A uh, little bit of advice, if you're ever in Ireland and you meet my brothers and they offer you some fruit, don't take it. Uh, and so, you know, they stole my stuff for years. They broke my stuff. Uh, whatever I had, they would take it. Um, the worst one ever was I was going to my graduation, my Debs, I don't know what you call them here. Uh, is it the same thing from sec? And I had my suit all ready in a, a suit bag and I opened it on the night and my suit was gone and there was a duffel coat put there and my brothers had stolen it and go off to a disco on the night of your debt. So anyway, I had two plans for revenge. The first plan was, you know, a hitman, but I couldn't afford that. So my second plan was I put them all in a book as horrible smelly goblins and then I had them, you know, die of stupidity basically. <laughs> and that was much cheaper and I felt a lot better after that. So. That's a bit of advice for you if you, if you have some family issues. 
don't get all upset about it. Just write a story. But change the, you have to change their names by one letter or else they will sue you. So I, my brothers are Donal, Eamon, and Niall, and the three goblins are Donal, Eamon, and Niall, which is completely, <laughs> completely different. I think you will agree. The lawyers certainly agreed, so that was... Now, we're over on this side now. Another prison jersey. Those jerseys are popular there. Oh, he's gone past you now, sorry. The guy with the hand up the... We'll come back to you next, okay? We'll do something up there. Who did you base Artemis Fowl on? Artemis Fowl is based on my little brother, Donal, I was just telling you about, because he was an expert at... Uh, getting out of trouble and I saw him once a photograph of him uh, making his first Holy Communion and he had a suit on uh, and a tie as you do and he had his arms all the other boys were like this and Dole was like this <laughs> and I thought he looks like a little Bond villain uh, wouldn't it be great if you had a Bond villain who was like 10 uh, and that's where where Artemis Fowl came from it was like a cheeky chappy but initially he was just going to be the bad guy in the books he was going to kidnap Holly and then he would be defeated at the end and that would be the end of it. But then I thought it's kind of bad to have his 12-year-old who just stays bad. Uh, so he began to grow and eventually he becomes kind of, you know, pretty decent. He's going to do it very slowly though because I want to get a series out of it. So <laughs> even though he's a genius in some ways, he's pretty thick in other ways. So, okay, there was a boy there. Yeah, yeah, that's him. How did you think up the names of the characters? How did I think up the names of the characters? What a good question. Um, I go to, once again, Philip Pullman. I change one letter. Uh, no, I don't. I like, in the Artemis Fowl books, in the fantasy book, you kind of got a bit of license. You can have names that mean something. So Foley, I thought this was hilarious. Foley is half horse. Um, I thought Foley, what? Nothing? Nothing, okay. Apparently, I'm the only one who thinks that's hilarious. I thought it was funny. Artemis Fowl. Artemis is the goddess of the hunt, and it was given to a boy that name when he proved to be a great hunter. And then Fowl is nasty, so he's the nasty hunter, and he's hunting the fairies. So you can give people names that mean something. Uh, and Root is like, because he's, he's what holds the police force together, he's like the root of a tree. Holly Short, very cleverly, because she's got red cheeks and she's short. And, um, and that's it. So I just, I like to find a name that means something, but also sounds good. Some of the best names in fiction, things like Huckleberry Finn, what a name, fantastic. Charles Dickens, of course, uh, was a master of it. He had all these fantastic names. Uh, and I wanted to find a name in Artemis Fowl that people would trip off the tongue and you would remember, but wasn't too Dickensian. Uh, like Liberty Jumperhard, you know, we did, there was people writing weird names, but I thought Artemis Fowl, that would be a good one. And luckily, people do remember it. You start on day release? That's okay. <laughs> see a couple of those stripy jumpers. Okay, anyone over this side? Oh, this girl there. I know we're over time, but we'll just keep talking until someone tells me to get off. Oh, actually, okay, last one. Someone did tell me to get off, okay. I'm Irish, we can just, I can just keep going. I can keep going longer than you. I have water up here, so I'm okay. Now, who was the last question? There was a girl just there with her hand up somewhere. There she is. There's no pressure now, but you know, it's the last question. <laughs> do you like to ba base your characters very closely on people? Or? I do. Um, I think if you strip back all the magic and the weapons and the whatever the fairy dust, you will find a real human underneath. Um, the only one I had problems with was the females, because we don't have any females in the Calfer family. Obviously, we have females in there, or, but we have to marry them in, which usually involves a darkened room and like 18 pints of Guinness. So, <laughs> I, I can't tell if they have drink problems. Uh, but me, no. Uh, so, uh, I had to like follow my wife around with my notebook. She's the only female inspiration I have, and I'm like, okay, honey, do something, girly, go. And she said, you get her, get the hell away from me with that stupid notebook. It's, you better get the hell. <laughs> but everybody in my life, my brothers, my sons are Miles and Beckett in the new book. Uh, my brothers have been in it several times as goblins, elves, all sorts of characters. My wife has been in it. 
Uh, there's people in this room who have been in them. Uh, there's all sorts. Anyone I meet is, I think, is fair game. Anybody I meet. So as long as I change a couple, of, I'm going to put Ian Rankin in one now. <laughs> Ian Rankin and Gordon Brown are going to be in the next book. I do, two goblin generals, I think. So <laughs> don't tell them that, though. You know. So for now, uh, thank you very much. Thank you. Um, Owen will be now signing copies of all his books in the signing tent, which is just as you leave the door on your left-hand side. If you just give us a couple of minutes to get him out and get him set up before you start queuing up. And thank you very much for coming along. Thank you.